0: Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is The Buck Sexton Show.
1: Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you here as always. Thank you for joining. 888-900-3393. Uh, this was not unexpected. I wasn't sure where it would happen first, but you are seeing the beginning of the revolt of the fourth branch of government, the permanent bureaucracy. If you want to understand the state department all you really have to know is the fame well there there are two state department attributed sayings in this country that really give you a good sense of what it's like over there. I spent a good portion of time in those uh, in in those state department conference rooms meeting with people, talking to people. And if you really want to know what's going on, all you have to do is know that they say that your options are for, for national security, uh, suffer in silence, do some diplomacy or nuclear war. That's number one. So, of course, diplomacy is not just the most important thing. It's the only thing, unless you just want to suffer or you want nuclear war. And then departments, uh, the department comes and goes, but, oh, sorry, <laughs> I had that completely wrong. Presidents come and go, but the department is forever. That's the other thing. There's a very imperious attitude you get over at State. And this always gets me in trouble because I know there are lots of great people at the State Department. I have many friends. and uh, you know, It's a place that there are some incredibly talented, hardworking people. But the general ethos of the place is bureaucratic sloth. I'm just going to say it. it. Just is. Just the reality. A lot of red tape, a lot of slow moving parts, too many parts, not a lot of accountability. So, with all that said, you look at the latest from the Washington Post here is that the State Department's entire senior management team has just resigned. As we know, Rex Tillerson has been given the job of running the State Department as Secretary of State. And while he's still just getting ready to get used to that, or getting used to it, I suppose, we find that inside Foggy Bottom... There are many people who have decided to resign unexpectedly. Uh, You have, this is the piece in the Washington Post, Patrick Kennedy, who was the undersecretary for management, he's been in the job for nine years, three of his top officials resigned unexpectedly, and then Assistant Secretary of State for Administration Joyce Ann Barr, Assistant Secretary of State for Consular Affairs Michelle Bond, Ambassador Gentry Smith, Director of the Office of Foreign Missions, et cetera, et cetera. All career Foreign Service officers serving under multiple administrations. Some of them are retiring. Some of them might be given assignments elsewhere in the Foreign Service. Now, you, other than Kennedy, who came up uh, in the Hillary Clinton email investigation, hmm, interesting, isn't it? These are not people you would likely have heard of, uh, nor would you particularly care. But they're calling this a house cleaning of senior government officials. This is illustrating a much broader trend, a much more important point, and that is that the government, when I tell you that the government has been infiltrated by progressives in many of the same ways the universities have been infiltrated, not just infiltrated, but overtaken, they are the dominant ethos. They are the organizing principle now inside of these bureaucracies and institutions. You have a lot of folks who have all sorts of government power as bureaucrats, not elected power, and they find themselves in positions to dictate to others a lot of politically motivated policy. And they are the first ones to cry foul over a Hatch Act violation. Uh, the progressive mind likes bureaucracy and likes, uh, likes to be in these large systems, uh, these, these enormous institutions Because you can always force people to do things and then hide behind the system. There's an endless array of little rules and regulations inside state, CIA, all these places. They can drive you nuts. And they do. They drove me nuts. The amount of stupid stuff I had to deal with inside the CIA was truly mind-blowing. The... Sorts of things when you would turn around and ask, why do I have to do I have to spend three hours doing this now? I have to spend my day doing that now. Uh, people would look at you and say, oh, yeah, I know it's terrible. Everyone everyone would agree it was terrible and unnecessary and stupid and pointless and a waste of taxpayer dollars. Nobody would do anything about it. That's what it's like to be in a large federal bureaucracy. I'm sure it's the same pretty much everywhere. CIA is supposed to be lean and mean as as federal bureaucracies go. I don't even want to know what it's like the Department of Agriculture or Commerce. I have a feeling it's not exactly a four-alarm fire in terms of the speed and efficiency with which everyone's acting day in and day out. But they have become part of the bureaucratic blob, and they see Trump coming in, and he offends their sensibilities. If you're a civil servant, you're supposed to do the job for for the benefit of the American people. It's not supposed to change the moment that there's a new administration in place uh, that you don't like. You still have a job to do. These are not individuals who, at least in general, I have to look at each of their job titles, are senior enough that they're going to be implementing policy and this is going to be some moral objection for them. I don't see that happening. And I have to say, I had I have a little bit of this in me, too. I didn't resign right when Obama came into office. I grumbled a bit to friends and some colleagues that I trusted that uh, this guy, I'm sick of being told how he's a genius. I, I see no evidence for that. I'm sick of being told he's the smartest foreign policy president in history when he hasn't even taken the oath of office. I, I, I'm sick of all of it already. Uh, But I didn't resign because of that. It was just a happy coincidence. I went about my life. I would have kept working at the CIA under an Obama presidency. I did for a time. I wouldn't have wanted to have been Obama's CIA director. There's a difference. Appointees versus civil servants. Civil servants are supposed to do the job. The job is necessary regardless of who's in power in the White House and which administration's in charge. That's the way this game is supposed to be played. That's the way this is supposed to happen. And yet, you have this newest data point that senior uh, that foreign service officers in regional bureaus have been leaving their posts or resigning. Uh, this the whole story. or The point of the story. Why is this a news story in the Washington Post? What they're saying is the experts, and you know the long and sordid history of progressives believing that expertise overrides individual rights, freedom, liberty, law, that the smartest people should make the decisions for everyone else and they get to decide what what means smartest. They have a long connection to this idea. So the story in the Washington Post, and you'll see more of these as well, is the true experts are fleeing these institutions because they refuse to work under a Trump administration. I think this has an interesting, an interesting corollary effect, or there's a side effect here that they're not taking into account, and that is, this is exposing for the American people to see that there are very politicized civil servants who are supposed to be non-political in many branches of government. And the State Department is a is an especially left-wing place. You have to take the for- and if you're talking about foreign service officers, you have to take the foreign service exam. Uh, I was very close with a foreign service officer when I lived in D.C. for a while, so I I, I know quite a bit about how their uh, day-to-day operates and what's required to get in. No more details on that one. Nonetheless, they think that this is showing the American people, look at how bad Trump is. Our best and brightest are leaving government. I think this shows a lot of Americans, oh, so these places are really just... Extensions of college campuses now. These are now places where politics override the needs of the American people that are supposed to be tended to by the civil servants. That's why we are paying their we are literally paying their salaries with tax dollars. You would think that there's plenty of work for them to do. I would also say especially for individuals who have a particular expertise, whether they're at state or anywhere else. If they think the Trump administration is inept, why not try to help? Why not do your part to keep the expertise in place that can make the government run better? But as I was saying to you, this is much more widespread than anybody who hasn't been in the government realizes. The amount of snickering I used to hear in CIA meetings about Bush, yep, just all of the the snide comments and remarks, even up to pretty senior levels, versus the way that people would just, oh, Obama was giving them the giving them the vapors. They just thought Obama was amazing. Oh, he's the best. He's a genius. He's brilliant. It was impossible to ignore that. It was impossible not to notice that I was in rooms a lot of the time surrounded by leftists of one kind or another, whether I don't know how far left, but. Certainly not conservative constitutionalists. Changes a bit when you get into the national clandestine, directorate uh, director of operations, I changed the name back, NCS. That's what it was for a while. Uh, changes a bit. But for the analyst cadre, a lot of lefties, a lot of them. And that there are these senior officers leaving the State Department right when Trump comes in and they're losing ambassadors, Plenty of people that can take that that AMBO's place. A lot of state and officers wait their whole careers to get a chance to be an ambassador. So I am sure it will be just fine. It's all part of the bigger story, though. And the story is that the smart, good people won't serve under Trump because he's so bad. Well, what does it say about them that they won't even wait until any policies are implemented? And... They're supposed to be in non-political positions. They are functionaries. They are bureaucrats. not talking about ambos now. That's a little different. But for these State Department management bureaucrats, they can't handle the heat under a Trump administration. They can't stick around and try to make things run a little better. At least give it a shot. This is how much they are dedicated. Uh, This is how much they are dedicated to the idea of a Democrat as opposed to a Republican. They will leave their cushy post, they will step down, they will step aside. I do want to give them some credit for sticking to their principles. I've said before, I, I find it very disconcerting that there are so few resignations, so much complaining via leaks to the press about various administrations, but so few senior level resignations. You don't see that. People resigning in protest of what's going on. Given all the debates we've had over national security and foreign policy of the last decade, how many high-profile resignations have you seen over the last 15 years? Now, some of these State Department officers are retiring, some of them are moving around. But I do think it's interesting that they're not, we're not talking about the head of a department, that's a political appointee that has to implement policy of the presidency. We're talking about people who are lower down the scale. They were supposed to be just doing a job that was for the benefit of the American people. But many of them seem to think they were doing a job that was to the benefit of the Obama administration, and that's it. Or they've been so polluted with anti-Republican and anti-Trump hatred that they don't think there's any good they could do if they stayed in their positions at the State Department. It's a sad commentary. I think it's a much sadder commentary on what's happened to the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy, than it is about the Trump administration, And I will admit that there are some senior appointees in the Trump administration that would not have made my list. That said, there are some others that would have been very high on the list. And I don't get to make those calls. It's imperfect, but are we judging it by what standard? Valerie Jarrett, David Axelrod, Ben Rhodes. Look at the most important figures in the Obama administration. Did we ever get all these stories about how They were either partisan hacks or completely unqualified or no, none of that. It was all hope and change. The world's going to be amazing. Everything is awesome. Obama's the best. And then it wasn't. And with Trump, it's the exact opposite. Everything is terrible. Everything is awful. All of his appointees stink. And if you like him, you're the worst. And when they find stories like this to write about at the State Department, that's the purpose. That's the the reason behind all this. Uh, 888-900-3393 on the phones team I've got a lot more show stay with me
0: Buck Sexton The Blaze Radio Network You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show, only on the Blaze Radio Network.
1: One of the big issues that's already come up has to do with vetting of refugees. Trump saying that there are seven countries in total that are uh, not going to be able to get visas into this country for a period of time. He was on ABC in an interview with David Muir. I just feel like his—I don't know, that guy's, very, that guy's very Zoolander, but nonetheless— and this is what Trump had to say about extreme vetting. We're going to have extreme vetting in all cases. And I mean extreme. And we're
0: not letting people in if we think there's even a little chance of some problem. Are you because con- are you we, are,
1: con- we are excluding certain countries. But for other countries, we're going to have extreme
0: vetting. It's going to be very hard to come in. Right now, it's very easy to come in. It's going to be very, very hard. I don't want terror in this country. Are you at all concerned it's going to cause more anger among Muslims around the anger? world? There's plenty of anger right now. How can you have more?
2: You don't think it will exacerbate the problem? David, I mean, I know you're a sophisticated guy. The world is a mess. The world is as angry as it gets. Well, you think this is going to cause a little more anger? The world
1: is an angry place. No foreigner has a right to come to the United States. This is this is what the Democrats don't seem to understand, or they pretend at least they don't understand it. This objection that there should be uh, what visas for people from anywhere? Do Iranians get to come here with the same frequency and the same ease as Englishmen? Is is that where we think this is all heading? Is that the way it's supposed to be? Are are we going to treat? Uh, those who want a visa from Israel the same as the, someone who wants a visa from North Korea that's how we're going to operate of course we make distinctions between countries and he's not basing it solely on religion he's basing it on the threat profile from these countries that do have just look at a look at the state department state department again look at the state department country reports on terrorism where is terrorism happening terrorism is happening in places like and then you go down the list Iraq, Sudan, Yemen, Afghanistan, you look at these countries and you understand very quickly that there is a very serious problem, Uh, Syria, and they have already used refugee flows in order to infiltrate Europe, and there have been mass casualty attacks in Europe, and there are very real political ramifications for European governments from those attacks, as well as civil rights discussions and clampdowns on liberty and Remember, a terrorist attack is most horrible for the families of those lost, but there are also ramifications for the broader society, and the terrorists know that. This is why terrorism is different than a uh, you know, a drug deal gone bad where a few people get shot. Okay, well, that's violence and that's criminality, and we need to deal with that. But five people shot by a maniac in a shopping center screaming Allahu Akbar and saying there's going to be a whole lot more of me and you better keep surveillance on everybody who's thinking about doing this, is quite different from a, a one-off you know, bank robbery gone, gone wrong. Right? We all understand this. The bank robber's not trying to create a societal upheaval. The bank robber doesn't have millions of people cheering him on. The bank robber doesn't have brothers in arms perhaps already infiltrated in the society who are going to be robbing banks for the next, oh, millennia. That's not the way it works. So we understand that there are distinctions with these things. Uh, but people just hate anything that Trump is doing on the security front. He also talked about torture. Waterboarding is not torture. I know this gets everyone upset, but not everyone. But waterboarding is not torture. Torture is a very broad term. If waterboarding is torture, well, then I also think that we need to talk about the psychological torture of being in federal prison, period. The fact of the matter is we do waterboarding to U.S. military and training. We don't electrocute them in sensitive areas. That's torture. Journalists are signing up to get waterboarded to know what it feels like. They're not saying sign me up. I want bamboo pushed under my fingernails. That's torture. That we have to keep having the same discussion Uh, when we had how many people were actually waterboarded? A handful. I don't even think they're going to bring it back. But if they do... Are we going to pretend that this is the end of Western civilization as we know it? I don't know. It doesn't upset me as much as it upsets a lot of other people. I do think, though, you're not going to be able to do it because who wants to be in charge of that program? Because the next Democrat might prosecute. All right. Uh, we've got a lot more team. Uh, have a Freestyle Friday guest move to a Thursday coming up here. So it'll be a surprise. Stay with me.
2: The Buck Sexton Show
0: We're
1: joined now by Stephen Zalaga. He is an analyst in the aerospace industry for over two decades, covering missile systems and the international arms trade. He has served with the Institute for Defense Analysis, and he's the author of numerous books on military technology and military history. He's here to talk about his brand-new book that just came out this week, Panzer Grenadier versus U.S. Armored Infantryman, European Theater of Operations 1944. Stephen, thank you for joining. Hi, how you doing? Good. So uh, tell us about
3: the book. Um, It's part of a series that looks at different types of infantry in combat through the ages. Uh, This one's a little bit different. It's not conventional infantry. It's armored infantry, meaning the infantry that serves alongside tanks, usually the types of soldiers that uh, go into battle on uh, tracked armored vehicles. Uh, In the case of World War II, it was on half-tracks.
1: And so the you do you do a comparison a contrast of the U.S. US armored infantrymen with the Panzer Grenadier in the book is that do you look at the difference in tactics gear what are some of the things you break down
3: yeah that's exactly it the idea in the uh, series is to look at um, the different opposing types of infantry um, and to look at them from various aspects uh, the training the tactics the type of equipment they use and rather than just have a, sort of a bland comparison of the technical points, the uh, the book takes three particular battles that involved uh, those type of forces on both sides and then takes a look at how well they performed um, and whether the contest was or the outcome of the contest was due to tactics or equipment or broader issues. And so in this particular book, um, there were three instances that were looked at. Uh, one of them was a uh, uh, battle during Operation Cobra in Normandy in the summer of 1944. The second one was a lesser-known battle by Patton's Third Army against the uh, F- Fifth Panzer Army in Lorraine in September of 1944. And then the final one is a better-known campaign, the Ardennes campaign. It takes a look at some of the fighting near Saint-Vith that involved the uh, Furbergly Brigade, which was a uh, uh, it had been hitler's personal bodyguard but it was converted into a panzer grenadier unit and thrown into the ardennes offensive so that's the way that it looks at the um, the different opposing forces
1: what tell us about that uh, that last unit you said it was hitler's personal bodyguard that was then thrown into the ardennes offensive uh, did they w- were they a, a very useful unit on that front or w- were there disadvantages that they brought to bear that the generals didn't expect right away how how did they perform in combat
3: Um, That unit actually, rather surprisingly, didn't perform especially well, and it was actually heavily criticized by the other German units. And part of the reason was is that even though there were a lot of very experienced troops within the unit, it had never really fought in combat. Um, As I described it, it was originally a uh, guard unit actually formed under Rommel. It was unusual in that most of Hitler's guard units were Waffen-SS, members of the SS. This particular unit was actually formed as part of the regular army. Um, and so, as I say, there were some elements of the unit that were uh, combat experience, but the unit as a whole had never fought together in combat. And by this stage of the war, the German army is in pretty desperate shape as far as equipment. So to give you an example, as I mentioned, the book deals with Panzer Grenadiers, that is um, uh, infantry that would fight from armored hat tracks. Well, of the, uh, the three component elements within that particular brigade, one of them was still riding around on bicycles. So that gives you some idea of the type of equipment problems that the German army was facing at that particular point in time. So the the unit um, did finally overcome the American defenses that were on the west side of Samvif, but at a fairly significant cost and certainly not in the timeline that the Germans had expected.
1: How do the, uh, the, the equipment and the tactics of armored infantry in this period, 1944, against the German Panzer Grenadier, Uh, Looking at it, I mean, if you have to tell me what are the advantages and what are the drawbacks that both sides had when they were squaring off against each other, what what would be your analysis?
2: Well, there's two big issues
3: when dealing with the World War II forces. The first of them is that this idea of mechanized infantry combat is brand new. So part of the issue is just equipment. How do you move the infantry so that they can fight alongside the tanks? And the common method during World War II were these armored half-tracks But the problem with them is or was that they weren't really as mobile as tanks. They had wheels in the front. They had a track section in the back. They were not fully tracked like the tanks were. And as a result, in uh, certain type of soft ground conditions, such as snow or mud, the type of conditions that you would have seen in the Ardennes in December 1944, they couldn't really keep up with the tanks that, uh, that easily. So that's one of the issues. The second issue is that, Armored infantry is usually part of an armored division. So typically, for example, in the American case, you're going to have three battalions of armored infantry in an armored division. But that is a very light infantry element within a division. To to give it some comparison, a regular infantry um, division will have nine battalions of infantry. So they're certainly useful. They're part of um, combined arms. They're, They're part of a mobile strike force. But on some missions, there's just not enough infantry on the ground within these units, and so they have some disadvantages. They're, they tend to be very effective in the offensive because they're, they're mobile. They tend to have a lot of firepower. Uh, but in defensive missions, oftentimes they have problems simply because there's not enough riflemen there.
1: A lot of uh, military buffs in this audience, military historians, uh, amateur, and, and I think even some professional. Uh, what are the other books you've written in this series? They want to check them out as well.
2: Um, there's two
3: parallel Osprey series. Uh, one series is called Combat, which is this book is a part of, and that is the infantry versus infantry um, uh, subject matter. There's a parallel series called Duel, which tends to be hardware versus hardware. So uh, my most recent book in the Duel series was called Bazooka versus Panzer, and what that deals with is one of the iconic USGI weapons of World War II, the uh, bazooka anti-tank rocket launcher and how it performed in combat during World War II against German panzer units. And that's another um, that's another particular one that uh, used uh, the Ardennes fighting as an example. It used the uh, battle at krenkel Rocheroth. not a particularly well-known battle, but uh, a very important one. And the um, the last one. in I your mind,
1: was what was not- the most important single most important single mechanized uh, mechanized unit advance or advantage that either side had in the Second World War, what would it have been?
3: Um, the advantages that they had oftentimes came down more to uh, the the skill and tactical uh, uh, adeptness that the units showed in combat. It, it's hard to point to a particular one. The German army, for example, in the early summer of 1944 was quite good. They gave the British in Normandy a very rough time, the, their armored units. But as time went on, especially by the time of the Ardennes, and certainly even more so after the Ardennes, the German army is in desperate shape. They're 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 short of skilled manpower, they're short of equipment, short of fuel, short of ammo. So a lot of times the um the when you look at just the, the paper issues, you know, the strength and type of equipment, it would seem as though the German army was quite good, but in practice they oftentimes didn't perform as well as might be expected. And it was largely due to the human element, um, the, the quality of the troops, the amount of training they had, and then, of course, other factors, the amount of ammunition they had, the amount of equipment that they had.
1: All right. Steven Zalaga is the author of Panzer Grenadier versus U.S. Armored Infantry, Infantrymen: European Theater of Operations, 1944, out in paperback now. Stephen, thank you so much for calling in. We appreciate it.
2: Okay. Take care.
1: Phone lines open, team 888-900-3393. We'll be
0: right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. the Buck Sexton Show.
1: Very interesting exchange last night on the uh, Tucker Carlson show, Tucker Carlson Tonight on Fox News, and uh, very interesting exchange between Tucker and Jonathan Gruber. You know, the one who's like the stupidity of the American people. He's like an advantage. That guy. Tucker was pushing back on on a whole bunch of uh, things that Gruber was trotting out there. Um, I wanted to play this exchange for you, then we'll we'll dig into a bit more.
0: I thought this law was supposed to help everybody.
2: This law was never supposed to help everybody, Tucker. That wasn't the design. The law was actually explicitly designed first in Massachusetts and then for the nation to leave the vast majority of Americans alone. People who had health insurance that worked for them through their employer or the government were not designed to be affected by this law, by and large, in the near term. They were hoped to benefit in the long term through lowering costs, but in the near term, the law was designed to fix what was wrong with our system, which was focused on the 20% of Americans who did not have health insurance or were buying it through a broken non-group insurance system. That is okay, so was not, and that was the design of the law.
1: Okay, so let me that's not at all what I heard the president at the time say, at all, and I was there. But, okay, fine point. Let me ask you, this is my sanity test. Are you really saying there are no victims
2: of this law? No, it's not law. either. I'm not, I'm okay. not saying so that. So who are the victims? Who's been hurt by Obamacare?
1: Here you go. Who are Who's the victims? This is good. has hurt by Obamacare
2: two groups. One is the wealthiest Americans, uh, the top 2% of Americans who had to pay new taxes. And uh-huh. second is very healthy individuals who benefited from a previously discriminatory insurance market. Stop.
1: Healthy people benefited from a discriminatory insurance market. Oh. You mean if you're young and healthy, you could buy a plan that wouldn't necessarily cover you for much unless you had catastrophic injury? He's admitting to you, and it's amazing, you should go and listen to the whole interview because of the language that Gruber uses. Uh, there's a lot of uh, nonsense piled in there. But he is admitting to you that this is all just a cost-shifting mechanism, that this is redistribution of wealth via the health system. And another excellent—so watch the whole Tucker interview last night with Gruber— because Tucker gets him on a a few very key points, this notion that it wasn't designed for... Why does it have to affect the whole healthcare system then? Why was it... I forget how many thousands of pages now. Over 1,000 pages, 3,000 pages, 1,000... Too many pages. Why would it have all of that? What's the purpose? What's the point? Why would it need to affect so much of the insurance market if it's only for those people? Ah, it's about a lot more than that, isn't it? And for the... Seventeen million or twenty million, whatever the number is, they're quoted. They say thirty. That's that's not true, uh, but the seventeen million people that get their insurance via Obamacare in some direct capacity, a majority of them get Medicaid, which is insurance for the which is insurance for the poor, and that's so that's a vast majority of them. So they just expanded Medicaid. So that's just that's just free. That just means the government's paying your medical bills now, and then for the rest of them, uh, they have these exchange these plans bought on exchanges that are just really bad and various lobbyists and Tucker got to this later in the interview various lobbyists have made sure that their fee their services for their particular industry or their sector of the healthcare industry are covered so there was a big giveaway effect for a lot of the players in the insurance market that were able to get a seat at the table and make sure that their services would be covered and then they force people on the exchanges to buy those plans that force them to cover things they don't want to cover. So that's also a part of this excellent piece as well. I would recommend for all of you uh, at AnnCoulter.com or she syndicated in a whole bunch of different newspapers. But she talks about what it's like to be. I didn't I didn't realize that Anne was on uh, Anne had to buy because she's somebody who doesn't work for a, a big employer. She works for herself, which is very nice. But she's had to buy Obamacare plans. And she points out that, first of all, the people that are working to pay for these terrible plans aren't able to go and march and 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 complain about how their health care stinks. I think that's a very important point that she makes. And then she talks about who really gets who really gets benefits from this. She's paying huge premiums. I I really it's I know some of you, because of Anne and the whole Trump thing, have issues uh, with her analysis of late i think she's i think she's great uh and i think you should check out her piece because no matter what what she says about obamacare everyone needs to know if you don't personally have any experience with obamacare you'll read this and you'll be terrified of it she said to change her plan three times uh, because they keep shifting around what's an acceptable plan and what's not and of course the government that puts the obamacare out there they won't live under obamacare so we all know that there's a hypocrisy that this entire thing is built on in the first place. And she just goes, goes to town on it says that you're paying in her case, like $700 a month for a, for a plan that no doctors will take that you want to go see. And, uh, you're paying $700 a month and your deductible is like seven or $8,000. So you're paying a lot of money. You can't see the doctors you want to see. And if you do get sick, Unless you get catastrophically sick, and then by the way, you're still not going to the hospital you want to go to or seeing the doctor you want to see, you're seven or eight thousand dollars out of pocket before they kick in anything. And you have no choice, you're forced to buy into this. This is why people hate Obamacare. And Gruber in the interview with Tucker last night was saying, Well, it's because people don't know enough about it. No, I think they know plenty about it, it's garbage. It is crap. You know, a big part of all of, of all this, the mentality behind Obamacare are two things. One is the soak the rich. Other people should pay for health care mentality, which the middle class is actually paying for the health care of the poor. That's where the, the majority of uh, you know, when you look at the, the, the pinch of Obamacare and who's paying their higher premiums. And yeah, if you're making 10 million dollars a year, you don't care about the Obamacare tax. But if you're not getting a subsidy and you're in the individual market and you're just a working person, you do care about the Obamacare tax or the Obamacare uh, uh, mandate, and which really is a tax, right? That's what we found out. You can either pay the government a fee in the form of taxation, or you can get a crappy plan. But this needs to go away. This is very bad. And another part of this, and I don't have time to elaborate on it right now, it's just the government pretending they can shield people from bad decisions. You know, If you want to buy a plan where you cover the first $5,000 of your health expenses year in, year out, but anything above that You've got a really good plan. You should be able to do that. You should be able to do that. The government shouldn't be calling all these shots for you. So, yeah, there we have it. Uh, team, we got a lot more coming up. Don't go anywhere. 888-900-3393. Hour 2, just a few minutes.
0: You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. spreading freedom across the nation this is the buck sexton show
1: all right team buck welcome back to the freedom hunt our friend guy benson joins now he's a fox news contributor he is the politics editor at townhall.com author of end of discussion guy great to have you
2: hello buck
1: how are you good good man Good good to hear from you uh let's uh, let's talk a bit about the Supreme Court nominees that Trump is considering. You have a piece up on townhall.com right now that lists where we are here. It, it was it, it was three names and then there were two? Is
2: that where we are? Well, that was what we heard, but I'm not sure that that's exactly accurate necessarily at this point. So there were a few different reports floating around over the last couple days. One of them came from Politico which said basically, yeah, they're they're down to two. Um, but I ended up bumping into Leonard Leo, who is a legal scholar, um, a law professor, Federalist Society guy who has been uh, an advisor to the Trump administration and the Trump transition on Supreme Court questions and this whole nomination process. I ran into him yesterday uh, at Fox in the Green Room in D.C., and I said, hey, Um, I saw there's – in addition to the Politico story in which Leo was quoted several times, uh, there was a CBS News report that it was down to just two names and that William Pryor, who's sort of a a rock-ribbed conservative justice who had been – or jurist who had been filibustered by Democrats during the Bush administration and eventually got through on a very close vote, uh, CBS had reported that he was sort of out of the running and it was down to two other potential candidates. I asked Leo if that was true, and he sort of shook his head no, and he said that he thought that was, quote, a stretch. So as far as I know, based on the publicly reported information and based on my conversation with Leo, who seems like a pretty well-positioned guy to be in the know, there are still three names as finalists on the table, although I'll just add parenthetically, Buck, that we're talking about Donald Trump, so... You can't necessarily take any of this reporting to the bank. There could be a dark horse and a surprise uh, in the wings. But I think based on what we know, it will likely be one of these three.
1: And what do we know about the three?
2: Well, we know that. So so you've got William Pryor, um, who's a hardcore conservative. You have Neil Gorsuch. I'm not exactly 100% sure how to say some of these names, but it's a G-O-R-S-U-C-H. Um, he is on the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals based uh, out in Colorado, and then there's a 3rd Circuit Court of Appeals judge, Thomas Hardiman. Um, So those are the three. Um, Based on what I've read, I've read a little bit on SCOTUS blog and a few other analyses. I also talked at length with Leo, uh, Leonard Leo, about uh, the other two, because I think William Pryor is a relatively known commodity. He was at the center of the big judge battles of the two mid-2000s under Bush, like, 2004, 2005, with the filibusters and the Gang of 14. He was one of those controversial people that was being blocked uh, you know, endlessly by the Democrats, and, and eventually the Gang of 14 uh, resolved that situation. Of course, subsequently, Harry Reid blew up the filibuster, so things have changed since then. But to give you a sense of prior, uh, he once led a prayer publicly— which ended with the pleading to God. He said, please, God, no more suitors, um, you know, meaning uh, Republican-appointed Supreme Court justices who sort of go wobbly and lefty once they reach the Supreme Court. Uh, so I don't think it's particularly ambiguous about what type of justice uh, prior would be. So then if you're a conservative who wants you know, a, a strong sort of you know, constitutionalist on the bench— Do you have any reason to be concerned about if if Gorsuch or Hardiman gets the nod? Um, Again, based on I am not a hardcore court watcher, I don't have in-depth knowledge, but I've done some homework on this and had some conversations. I don't get the sense that any of these three are in any danger of being a future David Souter type of justice. They have, at this point, pretty substantial judicial records, uh, there's a paper trail, there's opinions, and they're all consistently uh, constitutionalist conservatives. And the one thing I would say is that Gorsuch, the more I hear about Gorsuch, the more I, I like him. Uh, again, he's on a circuit court based out in the Mountain West, uh, the Tenth Circuit. And he has been compared many, many times to Justice Scalia, not just because of his judicial philosophy, but also because he's apparently an excellent, brilliant writer um, who writes very colorful, powerful opinions, which Scalia was famous for. So if you're looking for someone who's just sort of like, sort of a a second coming of Antonin Scalia, you can never replace the great man. But Gorsuch seems to be, um, would be, I think, a, a really good selection and I should also add, he's 49 years old. He's under the age of 50. Of the three, they're all young. They're all under 55. He's the youngest.
1: So if this actually goes through, if this happens, it's something for conservatives to celebrate. I, I know that there's—and, Guy, you were very open about how you felt during the, uh, the primary and the general about the concerns you had uh, with the Trump presidency. I, I feel like every conservative I know, based on what we know about these three choices, if it's one of those choices— has got to say, well, at least that's a good thing.
2: Oh, yeah. And, I mean, I have a number of friends who are similarly disposed towards Donald Trump as I am. I ended up not being able to actually hold my nose and vote for the guy. I just couldn't do it. Um, Of course, I didn't vote for Hillary Clinton either. But for those who were sort of anti-Trump conservatives, ended up voting for him over and over again, the justification that i heard was supreme court picks and it was a justification that i completely understood and on some level agreed with we knew that hillary clinton would pick bad liberal you know progressive breathing living constitution type justices and there was at least a significant hope that trump would keep his promise on putting on putting conservatives on the bench and so if that is what he does I'll be the first person in line to praise him. In fact, I, I made this pledge on Greg Gutfeld's show on Fox just before the new year. If Trump appoints a young constitutionalist to the Supreme Court, I will I will put on one of those goofy red baseball caps for a day uh, because this is such an important issue, and the the list of names twenty some odd names that Trump had put out looked pretty good to me overall. I've been advocating for Senator Mike Lee. I thought he was, uh, would have been an excellent choice. I still believe that. But again, of these three names, they're all consistent judicial conservatives uh, with established records, all under the age of 55, well-respected folks. Um, you know, I'd be, I'd be very happy with any of them.
1: What are your thoughts on the latest uh, immigration and security measures, Guy?
2: Well, I want to see sort of some of the details. And again, these are executive orders, some of which uh, Charles Cook at National Review is writing about this a little bit. Some of this stuff is just putting in writing, we intend to enforce laws that already exist. Um, And I think some of it's just kind of a declaration. I'm not saying that there's no legal weight to these things, to their presidential executive orders, but um, to some extent, I think these are also kind of messaging documents on some level, with the president coming out very early on in his term and saying, hey, remember all that stuff I said during the campaign and the, the major themes on policy that I would talk about? I, I meant it. And here I'm going to start codifying some of it, at least at a preliminary level, um, with some you know presidential imprimatur. Uh, so the fact that he's, you know, the, the wall and taking a look at pausing the refugee influx from certain countries that have issues with uh, terrorism and could be difficult to vet. I mean, none of these should be surprises to anyone. Uh, These were common refrains during the campaign. And, you know, obviously, I want to make sure that we take a look at these executive orders and make sure that they are uh, legal and constitutional. The beef with Barack Obama and his executive orders was never that he was doing too many of them. In terms of a raw numbers game, it, the numbers don't matter. What matters is, does is he acting within his authority, or is he usurping authority that is under the Constitution, delegated to other branches, particularly Congress? That was the crux of conservatives' critiques of President Obama. So with liberals saying, oh, all of a sudden, all of a sudden Republicans are fine with executive orders. It was never the existence or even the number of executive orders. It was the content of the order. So that's what we need to be consistent about and make sure that Trump doesn't overstep his bounds. Um, But, you know, again, what's going to mostly sway this stuff ultimately is going to be legislation. And the good news for Donald Trump is he's got a Republican Congress uh, prepared probably to move significantly on a number of his agenda items. And I'd imagine that's a significant uh, topic of conversation, recurring co- topic of conversation at the party's retreat, uh, which is underway right now in Philadelphia.
1: Guy Benson is Townhall.com's politics editor. He is also a Fox News contributor and author of End of Discussion, available on Amazon.com right now. Guy, always a pleasure, my friend. Good to talk to you.
2: Thank you, Buck. Talk to you soon.
1: Sponsor this hour is silencershop.com. Silencer Shop is the place to go, the place you can trust to handle the process of buying a silencer quickly and correctly. They submit lots of these forms. They know exactly what they're doing, and they'll make sure that your form gets processed as quickly and efficiently as possible. And you can pick out from their fantastic selection. They've got great prices, wonderful customer service. This is the place to go for a silencer for your firearm. Silencershop.com allows you to simply pick it up at a local dealer. No transfer fees and no shipping. So check it out, team. SilencerShop.com. Again, that is SilencerShop.com. Help make the world a quieter place. And we will be right back.
2: Rex Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network.
0: Listening
1: to the Buck Sexton Show. Team, we're joined now by Peter Brooks. He's a senior fellow for national security affairs at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, Peter, really appreciate you calling in.
0: Good to be with you.
1: Uh, All right. Can we start with the uh, Trump executive order on refugees? The pause in refugees hasn't signed it yet. Right. But is saying he will. What do you think about all this?
0: Well, I mean, it, we, there's a draft floating around, uh, and I'm uh, I have a an op-ed on my screen right here, and I'm waiting to see when it's happened. And I'm, I heard it was going to happen yesterday, and then today, and maybe tomorrow, and then next week. So, to my knowledge, it has not been it has not been signed. And what it really is, it seems to me, is to be taking a pause uh, to review all the programs for entry into the United States from some troubled parts of the world. You know, Syria. Um, in North Africa, um, and, and including a number of countries. And it doesn't say it's going to end up this way, but he's basically asking for his, uh, his lieutenants to go through and look at the policies and the programs and the procedures to make sure that we don't have folks who would do us harm get into this country.
1: What do you say to those who will, will call this both, uh, ineffective and yes, they will say it, un-American, that a pause in refugees from, I think it's seven countries, would yeah. fall into those two categories. I'm sure you've heard that opposition already, Peter. What's your take on that?
0: Well, I, I think it's ridiculous. I mean, just putting, you know, just a pause, to check to make sure we're doing everything we need to do. Now, the draft I've seen, which may not be the final draft, you know, talks about things like getting biometrics in there. So somebody can't come into into the United States under, in using some sort of disguise or bad documents. Um, it, you know, it looks at enforcing, you know, visa programs to make sure that nobody, nobody comes in here. I mean, I think what they're worried about is what is, they've seen in Europe, where some of the attackers, the terrorist attackers we've seen there, have come in with the migrant flows, have come in posing as refugees. Uh, and I think the president wants to stop that. I mean, we're in, we're in unprecedented times here, and I would want people to look at that. And what the president is doing is totally defensible, in my view, especially as you look at the Islamic State. And this is one of the things I'm trying to point out in my Boston Herald column. I mean, this ISIS is in crisis. There's a lot of pressure on it in Mosul. There's a lot of pressure on it in Raqqa. Um, It's going to splinter. And all these thousands of foreign fighters are going to go somewhere. Uh, You know, probably some of them are going to stay and fight, uh, trying to find uh, places in Syria and Iraq where they can do that. Others are going to try to return home. A lot of them are what are of the actual
1: changes that you 've seen in the draft, Peter, with regard to extreme vetting as it 's now being referred to by pretty much everybody
0: yeah well they're they 're talking about doing that, and the president's really just asking for a report you know I mean this is an eight page document the one i 've seen like I said, I could be behind the power curve here. this is the one that 's floating around i 'm not sure how it got out out of the administration, uh, and I, but it seems to be reasonable and it's it 's somewhat legalistic uh, you know in fact, to run down the eight countries or seven countries they 're talking about, you have to go to two different sets of documents laws uh to to run those down because those countries are not mentioned not mentioned at all so what he's really doing is asking for recommendations on this uh you know how do we go what's the what are the best practices for doing this and you know here's 90 days and get back to me and let me know uh what you what you're thinking at that point so uh you know i think it's it seems very reasonable uh, to me considering the environment that we're that we're operating in i mean we is there an argument really- that you
1: think could i'm sorry peter go ahead
0: no go ahead no go ahead no please.
1: I was just going to say, is there an argument to be made that by making the vetting procedure better, it opens up the door to safer and perhaps even more effective refugee intake in the future? Right. So that the next time a crisis breaks out, we're like, well, these are the procedures. We know how to do this, and we're not worried about infiltration by terrorist groups. Or do you think that's getting a little a little ahead of the skis?
0: No, I mean, why 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 would you be against better policies, programs, you know, procedures, better practices? I mean, you know, this, this could be, you know, that we, this, I doubt this scourge of terrorism is going to disappear overnight with, you know, the fall of ISIS. Al-Qaeda is still out there. They're going to want to fill that, they're going to want to fill that space. But there's, there's other things. I mean, this could, you know, apply to criminals. It could apply to, to others. I mean, illegal immigrants. I mean, there's all sorts of things. I mean, my understanding, I'm not an expert on immigration, but my understanding is that not all illegal immigrants come over the border. Are they some of them fly in. I mean, I have to come over some sort of border, but I mean, they're not coming over the southern border. They can, they're flying in. That, that's a, I mean, I'm not sure if that's correct. I've heard that. Um, so you know, this is you know, getting better on the entry system uh, and exit system for the United States, I think, is, uh, is, is worthwhile looking at. And we have a new president in. I mean, this is a new, this is a new chapter. And I think if I were taking over uh, the, exec, the Oval Office, I'd want to have a lot of programs looked at to make sure that, that they're supporting and advancing American interests.
1: There is no uh, there is no real constitutional issue here, right? You hear people say that as well, that this is against American values and this is presidential overreach. We the president can decide for national security reasons that any uh, foreign alien person is barred from the country. And there's a long-standing history of that. Actually, this is not new.
0: Well, I, I'm not a constitutional scholar. I don't know if you are, Buck, but, you know, I, I think, you know, I play one on radio. Yeah. <laughs> well, a lot of these, uh, a lot of these documents start out with the, with the phrase "by the authority vested in me as president, by the Constitution and laws of the United States of America." Um, you know, people will look at this; they're going to spin it any way they want, and they will, right? I mean, they're already spinning it. We haven't even seen the final document. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm having a, a little reluctant to even talk about it because we haven't seen it, and I'm not sure if the draft copy I've seen is the most, most recent one. Uh, but, yeah, people are going to say that. I mean, there may be elements, there may be issues here that they're brought up in the uh, judicial system. Uh, but that's our system, right? We're, we're open to a debate. We're open to you know, making sure that we're you know, protecting and advancing American interests. And so I don't think anybody should be, uh, should be afraid of that. And that's, that's part of the American system and what makes it great.
1: So we're going to have a piece to read of yours up on the Boston Herald soon. Is that right? <laughs>
0: that's right, yeah, on this issue, depending on when they release this thing, because I do want to make sure that I'm correct. But my, the thesis I'm saying is, look, this is defensible considering what we're doing, what we're dealing with in the world. Uh, and the countries, when you think when you think about them. I mean, you know, there's al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and Yemen. You know, Sudan is on the state sponsors of terror list as well as Iran. We know what's going on in Syria. We know what's going on. We know what's going on in Iraq. Uh, Libya is another country listed on there, and that's, that's a mess right now. You have ISIS. You have al-Qaeda. You have a civil war. Uh, some of these folks are coming from North Africa into Europe and places like that. So I'm just saying, you know, take a step back. And look at what we're dealing with from a national security point. And I I think people will see this as a very defensible move by the president.
1: Peter Brooks is Senior Fellow for National Security Affairs at the Heritage Foundation. He has a piece already up, Donald Trump's Troubled World on Day One, bostonherald.com, and look out for his next one. Peter, really appreciate you joining. Thanks for calling in. Thanks for having me. Uh, 888-900-3393-TEAM. See see the way that Peter said thanks it was like cheerful and happy like he was thankful. I mean Charles Cook is like my English brother from another mother but we got to get him to get a little little enthusiastic in that last little sound bite there. All right, team, more coming.
2: The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network.
1: Team, there's not been much coverage of this at all. I think this is fascinating. You have ISIS leader Abu Bakr al Baghdadi. As of uh, two days ago, there are all these reports that he was critically injured in an airstrike in northern Iraq. This courtesy of the Daily Mail. Uh, they have ISIS leader Abu Bakr al Baghdadi said to have been critically injured in airstrike. Comes a bit amid reports of a uh, a fanatic in charge of executing. Women has been killed. Abu Abdel Rahman killed by unknown gunmen in Mosul, security source claims, and he was assassinated by a gunman who killed him right on the spot. So if it is in fact the case, as it seems to be here, that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi was injured, I mean, this is the most high-value target that we currently have in the fight against the Islamic State. Now, I know it it isn't saying that he's dead. It's saying he's critically injured. But this seemed to pass without any press attention, or I shouldn't say any because I'm reading news reports on it, but with, with minimal press attention. And I have to wonder, when are we going to switch to some of these national security issues that involve our troops on the front lines fighting, Iraq and Afghanistan? That is still happening. We have troops in harm's way in both countries. You've got Iraqi troops... Uh, Doing the bulk of the fighting in Mosul. And this has been underway for many weeks now. And Mosul is a city that is bisected by the Tigris River. And the eastern part of Mosul, they've thought would be the less heavy fighting. The western western bank of the Tigris, the western part of Mosul, is where it is more likely that there will be uh, even higher casualties per square block that the fighting will intensify. And the Iraqi government, with this 100,000-person force, seems to be in a position where it can continue on as is and will take back this territory, but at considerable cost. This is a huge battle that's underway in the Mosul crucible, and there's not much attention being paid to any of this. I mean, the fighting to retake Mosul from the Islamic State is is slow, it's difficult, it's it's bloody. And here we are months into this campaign with over 100,000 Iraqi security forces and, and militia starting out around the city. And we finally have the eastern portion largely in government hands. Remember, this is the fight against ISIS. Trump always talks about how he's going to destroy ISIS, he's going to take it right to him, he's going to make sure that We annihilate radical Islam, and the Islamic State is now the most visible manifestation of uh, jihadism in the world. And we've got Trump—I'm sorry, we've got uh, Mosul slowly finding its way back into the hands of the Iraqi government. You read the stories from reporters who are on the front lines who are witnessing all of this, and there are people who, when they come out of their homes, they are blinded temporarily by the sunlight because they've been hiding in— completely dark rooms with no windows or in basements. They're hiding from the Islamic State thugs who will go house to house and murder people who are suspected of insufficient loyalty to the collapsing Islamic State. They stay away from windows because they don't want to be hit by shrapnel. They don't want to get hit by an errant bullet. And there's a, there's a lot of street-to-street street fighting that's going on uh, between the Iraqi forces and the Islamic State fighters. Um, And retaking the city has been uh, has been a very difficult slog for the Iraqi military with the U.S. playing a very a a much much less visible role, but an essential one. There are U.S. special forces who are working right alongside some of these Iraqi units and they're helping with airstrikes. U.S. airstrikes have proved essential in this campaign. One of the major tactics uh, that the Islamic State really honed in the last couple of years is the usage of, suicide, of vehicles in complex maneuvers to knock down barriers and then bring in a large explosive payload in the back of a vehicle-borne improvised explosive device, a VBIED or an SVBIED if there's the driver's still in it, which usually there is, and that's been the biggest the, the biggest problem that the forces in Mosul have run into, you can shoot a driver, but if you're shooting him when he's 50 or 100 feet away and he's got a 1,000 pounds of explosive in the trunk and shrapnel, well, the, the whole vehicle turns into shrapnel or at least parts of the vehicle turn into shrapnel at that point, point. and if he's packed it with some ball bearings and other things to increase the shrapnel effect— you can have a a very deadly weapon. It's hard to deal with because, of course, there are cars in the city of Mosul. Mosul's a a pretty large city, certainly by Iraqi standards. It's about 800,000 people, give or take. And you have tens of thousands that have had to flee their homes, Um, tens of thousands that have, with winter approach, uh, with winter underway, I should say, very little in the way of fuel, very little in the way of food. There's really no medical care to speak of and there's a humanitarian disaster looming because you may have hundreds of thousands of civilians caught on the west bank of the Tigris river in this increasingly desperate resistance from these islamic state fighters and i would just say that you know the the iraqi government and its allies are in the midst of quite a test here and The rest of Iraq and the rest of the Middle East and, in some ways, the world is watching this, although the rest of the world is not watching this with the degree of attention that I think they should or that they would. Um, This is this would be once they finally take back this city, the most single crushing blow against the Islamic State. And the ISIS fighters are not in any position to do anything other than just increase the casualties of the Iraqi government. And achieve martyrdom now. But what happens not just in the waning days of this battle with Iraqi forces? I mean, the counterterrorism service, which is the best of the best of the Iraqi military, those counterterrorism troops have taken an, a, a beating, taken very high casualties, and doing a lot of the fighting. You have Shia militias that are around the city and providing security and securing the perimeter but they don't really want them in the midst of this Sunni-majority city because of the sectarian tensions that would certainly flare up from that. And there are those in Mosul, there are Sunni Arabs in Mosul who are going to be very happy to see the Islamic State gone, but they don't want Shia militias, some of whom have blood of innocent Sunni Arab Iraqis on their hands already, they don't want them walking the streets of Mosul. So the, the way this is conducted with weeks, maybe months, but with weeks left to go in this fight, it'll probably be a few months, matters. Uh, every aspect of this fight matters, because this is primarily a military operation, but it is really also part of a larger propaganda and public perception war. You see, this is about much more than just retaking a city from ISIS. The, the campaign in Mosul is the centerpiece of a much-needed uh, national narrative Narrative of sectarian unity. They have to bring together all these different factions, Sunni, Shia, and Kurd. And in Mosul, this is the mobilization of those forces together in one common purpose, driving the Islamic State out. And you finally have a situation where they are working in concert. There has been uh, maybe a minimum is too too strong a way to put it, but there's certainly not been a a large, there have not been large-scale sectarian uh, reprisals. There haven't been a lot of heavy casualties taken in sectarian fighting against the different forces. So they are focused on taking out uh, ISIS. And Prime Minister Abadi has this unwieldy coalition of Kurd, Sunni, and Shia. And they're all allied in this patriotic effort to get the Islamic State To get off of Iraqi soil. That's really what this boils down to. They can push them across the border, push them out or kill them. In the case of Mosul, they a lot of them are dead enders. They're not going to go willingly. They want to go down in a martyrdom operation, one kind or another. But the success of this indigenous multi sectarian Iraqi force uh, is in, in liberating Mosul from ISIS occupiers. This is the kind of political capital the government in Baghdad is really going to need. And if a Trump administration is going to create a much more hopeful and stable Iraq than what we've seen in recent years under the Obama administration, there's a real moment of opportunity here. But it's an opportunity that could quickly slip out of uh, the Iraqi government's grasp if they don't seize it. And I don't get the sense. And look, I'm not involved in discussions at the Pentagon or CIA or White House, obviously. So I don't know. I don't get the sense the administration has much of a focus on this at all. Now, certainly the commanders on the ground on the U.S. side and and working with allied commanders have an excellent view of this and they have their uh, they have their mission. They understand what they're trying to accomplish there. But this is where the vision of a particularly strong secretary of defense and also a an adept commander in chief could be really valuable. So the way that this coalition of generally unwilling partners, Sunni, Shia, Kurd, comes together in in the latter stages of the Mosul operation when the fighting is going to get more intense, and then, of course, after that, you're going to have the hold part of the clear and hold operation where some force is going to be walking the streets dealing with continued attacks from... ISIS fighters who have melted back into the civilian population, although that's not going to be as easy as some might think. The overwhelming sentiment you get from all the reports of the population in Mosul is that they hate the Islamic State, they want them gone, and anyone who was walking around with a beard and an AK and part of the tyranny of ISIS in Mosul is going to have a very hard time turning around and all of a sudden pretending that everything's fine and he's just another guy. There are some tragic outcomes from this, though, that are also plausible. Uh, The urgency of the Islamic State threat has eclipsed these sectarian tensions uh, momentarily, Uh, but there are plenty of ways for the Mosul operation and its, uh, its immediate aftermath to turn into a sectarian nightmare. Uh, You have these popular mobilization units, which are the Shia militias. PMUs are, it's a rebranding, and it's quite a rebranding of Shia militias. uh, And they include militants that have been accused of war crimes in previous cases. So what happens with them after ISIS is gone is going to be an essential data point. And uh, that's going to really play a large role in determining the success or failure of this operation over the long term. So if there are anti-Sunni reprisals, or if entire blocks are callously raised with heavy weapons, uh, Iraq's sectarian divide could turn into a chasm very quickly. Now These are the notes I've been taking for myself, by the way. I'm sharing some of this with you because I'm thinking about writing a broader analytic piece on Mosul, and I wanted to make sure I really hit all the different facets of it. Uh, this is a much more important story than you'd gather from watching the news, and what's going on in Afghanistan is also not getting coverage and i'm telling you they're going to start covering afghanistan when it's obvious that there's big problems there it's falling apart and they're going to and immediately the the silence that they've had in the media on afghanistan for a while will be a means of uh a means of transferring any blame for afghanistan to trump let will be oh well look afghanistan's falling apart on trump's watch it's been allowed to deteriorate under obama's watch without a peep from the media and with mosul I think they're waiting to see this play out because they're they're hoping that there's an opportunity here. If things go bad with the stabilization operation of Mosul after they've cleared out ISIS, they're going to want to put this at the Trump administration's doorstep and say that this is Trump's fault and that he's a inept and incompetent commander-in-chief. So the media is playing games with all this stuff. But I want to keep you up to speed on it as much as I can. It's important to watch. The fight against ISIS is very much still underway. Uh Team Phone Lines open 888-900-3393. Be back in just a few.
2: Buck Sexton, The Blaze Radio Network.
0: Listening to the Buck Sexton Show only on the Blaze Radio Network.
1: Team, I mentioned what's going on in Afghanistan. You've got the Taliban just a uh, just yesterday releasing this letter that it that they're telling Trump it's time for the U.S. to leave Afghanistan. This is from ABC News. The letter, emailed to journalists, was written on behalf of the so-called Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. Uh, Zabihullah Mujahid, the Taliban spoke, spokesman, warned Trump that peace will be elusive as long as foreign troops are on Afghan soil. And he, he adds that independence from foreign dominance is the only asset that an impoverished nation like Afghanistan truly has. So this was written in English, Pashto and Dari, two of the biggest languages, the two biggest languages spoken in Afghanistan or Dari and Pashto. And it went on at some length about Afghanistan's history and invading armies and uh, the position of the coalition in Afghanistan is not good right now. Uh, There are a lot of problems. The Taliban has control outside of the cities in the south, so in provinces like Helmand and Kandahar, and you're just not hearing about it. Uh, They're doing this pretty quietly because they realize that with a new administration coming in here, they want to create both facts on the ground and then create their own perception for what Afghanistan is, what's going on in Afghanistan right now. So there are some very serious issues that are coming up right now. I I don't know what the Trump plan for Afghanistan is going to be. If we pull out U.S. troops right now, this thing is going to go to hell in a handbasket very quickly. And it's it's a major concern. Obama did not end the war in Iraq or the war in Afghanistan. He just did a bad job managing both of them now here we are finding ourselves facing many of the same problems that were around eight years ago except we've had eight years and taken a lot of casualties particularly in Afghanistan all right Jim, we've got more coming up we'll be right back
3: this is the Buck Sexton show
2: the blaze radio network
0: freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show.
1: All right, Team Buck, welcome to our three today in the Freedom Hut. Great to have you with me as always. Uh, just a reminder that I will be in for Rush tomorrow on the EIB 12 to 3 coast to coast. Uh, always a great time. Uh, always such an honor and a privilege. So much fun to do Rush's show and uh, hang out with his team—they're great guys—and I, I really enjoy being over there. So, uh, of course, if you get a chance, uh, you can tune in. And I love—I ha- feel like the team is with me whenever I'm over there. You know, team Buck—it's like having a, a section for family and friends when you're a tennis player, or I don't—I guess they have that for football. They probably have that for all professional athletes. Uh, I don't know—I didn't go pro, unfortunately. Um, but that will be tomorrow, so there will be there won't be a Freestyle Friday. Per se, this week, we've sort of spread out much of the freestyle freestyle segments throughout the week. A sprinkling of freestyle here and there for all of you. Um, I wanted to get back into uh, this one Trump move that is increasingly going to come under a lot of media scrutiny. And I remember during the earlier days of the campaign, right, so back during the primary you would hear a lot about how Trump's Muslim ban just proved what a, a fascist he was and what a, an evil, terrible man he was. And I remember going on TV and saying over at CNN and saying at the time, this is going to be something that is an evolving. I said something along these lines a long time ago. I don't remember exactly, but I was like, look, I don't think the Muslim ban is good, I think it's counterproductive to ban an entire religion from entry into the country, uh, which was not the way the administration kept the position. for They didn't keep it that way for very long. And then they started to focus in a little bit more, and we started to hear about how the administration was going to ban people from certain countries. And then that was said to be also unfair and wrong, and what are we going to do about the poor refugees? There's so many aspects of this discussion, this debate, that, I think, are, are misrepresented. One of them is, why is it that the U.S. is the country that, uh, given what we've seen happen in Europe, there's a real argument to be made, and it's one that some folks are still very uncomfortable with, that taking taking people, even refugees, and there's a, a tremendous, we should have a tremendous amount of humans, you know, basic human sympathy for anybody who's in a horrific and and dangerous and deadly situation like the Syrian refugees and people from other conflict nations are in. I get that. But we also have to look at the way that refugees can integrate into new cultures, and it's tough to see. If you're coming from a a traditional, you could say, orthodox Muslim background in Syria— and you've been through a lot of horrific violence and you only speak Arabic, the, the notion that you're going to thrive in the United States, that, that might be a bit of a reach. It would seem that there's an argument, at least to be made, that other Muslim-majority countries, Arabic-speaking countries, would be a much better place for those refugees to go for, for, everyone, for everyone's sake. And I know that there'll be some who say, well, Buck, that is happening. Look at Jordan. Well, Jordan's bursting at the seams with refugees already. And they don't make them Jordanians necessarily. This is this is another very interesting part of this discussion that you don't hear much about. I've been to those refugee camps, as you know, or I've been to the biggest one, Zatari, on the Syria-Jordanian border. I went a couple of years ago for the Blaze. And it's a sobering experience, to be sure, and it's one that if you work in media and you're going to cover wars, I think you should go see what the, uh, the wages of war, in a sense, are in... The consequences that people suffer when they're in these refi- when they're forced in these refugee camps and the, the damage that's done to their lives—that's um, something that people should see. They should be aware of. Uh, but when I look at this, I think to myself, "Well, the Jordanians aren't even processing them to be permanent residents of Jordan. They're just holding them here with the idea they want to go back to Syria." And a lot of them said at the time to me through a translator that their goal was not to get to, to Germany or the UK, or the United States. Their goal is to just stay alive and stay safe with their families until they could return to Syria. So the refugee camps in Turkey and in Jordan are really more like holding areas for people, safe zones, and not the safe zones that we were thinking about creating in Turkey or, or in Syria, rather, along the Turkish border as a with a no-fly zone. Um but these are really holding areas. They're not about permanent residency. And the Obama administration, of course, pushed to increase the number of refugees from Syria specifically, but overall the number of refugees in pretty dramatic fashion. And there's no discussion with them about, well, what, what does this do to assimilation and what about the security risks? And then you got into the whole, oh, there's no security risk from, refugees in these countries that's just nonsense that's bigotry that's hatred that comes from a dark place that we shouldn't give a public hearing to uh, let me just give you this from the los angeles times federal agents are reinvestigating syrian refugees in u.s who may have slipped through vetting laps. Um, agents have not concluded that any of the refugees is from the los angeles times that any of the refugees should have been rejected for entry, but the apparent glitch, which was discovered in late 2015 and corrected late last year, prevented U.S. officials who conducted background checks on the refugees from learning about possible derogatory information on them, the two officials said. At a minimum, the intelligence would have triggered further investigation that could have led some asylum applications to be rejected. The refugees whose cases are under review include one who failed a polygraph test when he applied to work at a U.S. military installation overseas, and another one who may have been in communication with an Islamic State leader, according to the officials who spoke in the condition of anonymity because they were not authorized to discuss the matter. This is all from the Washington Times. So this raises questions. I'm sorry, the uh, Los Angeles Times. This raises questions. If we're already looking at Syrian refugees that have made their way to the U.S. and saying some may have slipped through the cracks, and when you're talking about maybe being in contact with an Islamic State leader, it's pretty serious derogatory information. This This is not something to be taken lightly at all. There do seem to be vetting gaps. The screening process, you could say, is indeed more than just imperfect. It's unacceptable in its current form. Now, I mentioned before the numbers with Obama. L.A. Times writes here that President Obama ramped up the acceptance of Syrians late last year to address the humanitarian crisis in that country, admitting 15,479 Syrian refugees, which is a 606% increase over the number in 2015. Since the Civil War started, the U.S. has accepted more than 17,000 Syrians seeking asylum. That's according to the State Department. And the vast majority pose no threat, according to officials. Now, I think that that's true. I think we can say the vast majority do pose no threat. But as a country, we are allowed to have a conversation about whether or not we want to put ourselves in a position where even that small threat is something that we have to endure. We have control as a sovereign state over who comes and who goes. And when you're talking about refugees and asylum seekers, this is just the good grace of the American people On offer via the U.S. government. I think one of the parts of Obamaism when it comes to refugees and this particular situation, one of the parts of this that was uh, important to a lot of Trump voters was the sense that the disconnected elites who make the decisions about refugee policy don't have any idea, know nothing about what it's like to, in real life, deal with refugees in your schools in your neighborhood, and they also have this ideological position that Islamic countries are not more likely to send people into the United States who are a terrorist threat. And you look at the numbers, I think it was just in the last couple of days, it was maybe Jane's intelligence. I thought it might be the State Department uh, terror report, but I think it was Jane's intelligence did a whole piece on where terrorism is happening most in the world. Terrorism is lethal terrorism, not, oh, someone said something mean to me because I was wearing a Bernie Sanders shirt, you know. Not stuff like that, but lethal terrorism, violence, murder done in the name of a political ideology. When you frame it that way, the Islamic uh, Islamic world, unfortunately, is the wellspring of far too much of this stuff, and it is disproportionate. These are just facts. Places like Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan are suffering from much more terrorism in their own borders, but also exporting it around the world. And we've seen this now in uh, European capitals. We've seen this in Turkey, these mass casualty attacks. And there's this... Despicable game the media likes to play of, oh, well, let's not, you know, let's not jump to any conclusions. Let's not start to uh, uh, pretend that we can know who might be behind any of this, you know, because that's the real threat. That also adds into people not trusting the administration to handle terrorism as an issue in general. That is a part of this whole discussion. That is an issue that comes up here. And when people don't trust, the elites those who are making policy about immigrants and immigration to be honest about the threat and to be honest with the american people about what's really going on then you have a situation where you know people are voting for trump they just they they don't they don't want to hear it they don't want the soft peddling they don't want the nonsense they just want someone who will give them a straightforward reading a straightforward approach to dealing with these problems and who will speak about it openly and honestly? So the Muslim ban has now evolved into a ban on immigrants—a temporary ban on immigrants from seven countries—and no one has no no foreigner has a right to come to the United States if we improve the vetting procedures and and, and security professionals are allowed to really weigh in on this, and they're not just uh, they're not just forced into pretending that this is all going to be okay. Well, then it's something that can be reversed. It's a it's a temporary ban. This is not supposed to be a forever thing. This is supposed to just be a let's not allow infiltration of this country by ISIS fighters. They've been doing this in Europe. This isn't some theory that's been concocted. This isn't some fever swamp dream. This isn't some uh, crazy cockamamie novel idea that's now made its way into the discussions about policy. The truth is that in Europe, there have been mass casualty attacks that have occurred because of refugees. And the United States taking in the same kind of refugees is a big problem. And by the way, keep in mind, it's not just the refugees that we take, it's also the U.S. immigration system, which allows those who have family in this country to go to the front of the line for bringing in more people. So if you bring in 15,000 Syrians and then they all want to bring in their uncles, daughters, wives, cousins, whatever it may be. You're going to take in a lot more than that. And it is not incumbent upon the American people to take risks that they don't want to take just because there is this humanitarian impulse. We are a country of very decent and considerate people. And it's it's not about racism. It's not about xenophobia. And everyone got sick of that. I know I got sick of it. I certainly got sick of the discussion we would constantly hear That the problem with Islamic terrorism is that the countries that are bringing in these refugees aren't nice enough to the refugees. I would think that if a country took you in and saved you from a horrible fate, perhaps the murder of of one person and their entire family, there would be a lot of gratitude for that country, but... Just pick up a, a paper, and if you, can, if you can read in some of these European languages, read it in the original, but you can see it in translation, and we pick it up sometimes in our own media, of what the real situation has been with, with refugees that have been taken in. So Trump's going to try this policy for a while. I mean, Obama took in 15,000 refugees. So you can say that that's, there's a risk inherent in all that, but let's not pretend like this is solving the Syrian conflict or this is saving huge numbers of people this is all about risk mitigation and we can have open and honest discussions about that i would hope under a trump administration without it turning into just finger pointing and islamophobia and xenophobia and all the other things that are trotted out there uh team i've got a lot more 888-900-3393 on those phone lines be back in just a few
0: Rex sexton
2: the blaze radio network
1: Radio Network. You know, I should probably go check out some of these movies that are out that people say are really good. I, I don't usually talk to you that much about movies here on the show, but um, Ms. Molly saw La La Land, said it was great, but if I was going to see that one, I think I because would, uh, because the Oscars are coming up pretty soon, right? So, um, but yeah, uh, La La Land is supposed to be a good movie. I, I'm usually not a musical person, though. I, I just... Generally, can't get excited about watching a, a musical. It's just not, not in my, in my, uh, in my, ba- in, not in my wheelhouse. We could put it that way. Uh, there are some exceptions to that, and you know, even sometimes a cartoon musical. I will make exceptions for Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast. Uh, but the movie Arrival is um, also supposed to be really good. I've heard that, that is that is excellent. So I'm thinking about checking that one out too. And then I know there's a movie called The Dog's Purpose, which I have not seen, um, but I feel like we all know what a dog's purpose is, right? I hope you all enjoyed the part of the show yesterday where we talked about pit bulls. Fascinating to me that there's such a, a hot. People get really invested in that because, look, I, I understand, right? If you love your dog and if you're especially if you love your dog and it's a pit bull, you don't want to hear people saying that the breed is a danger and that they're bad. and uh, But very very fierce de- debate and discussion on that one. And it is interesting to me because it does sometimes mirror some of the language you'll hear in the, in the gun debate. Right? It's about being a response. You, know, you can be a responsible gun owner, you can be a responsible pit bull owner. Both can be dangerous under the wrong circumstances. I'm, I'm not saying these are the same discussions. I'm just saying that you, the way that it gets framed because you, 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 the news reports are about irresponsible pit bull owners. Usually, or people that are using pit bulls for illicit purposes, but of course, most of the time, a vast majority of them are safe and cute and friendly, and everything is is fine. So uh, the the dog discussion very quickly turns into a uh, that gets that gets politicized. Uh, that gets uh, people really really fired off when it comes to pit bulls. I've always found I, I find that uh, Doberman Pinschers. Put me a little bit more on edge. There's just something Dobermans look a little scary. I I've met sweet Dobermans. So you don't have to send me an email telling me that Dobermans are great. I, I know. I'm I'm aware, but Dobermans. I, I've always thought that Rottweilers. Well, I know they're also very powerful and and can be dangerous. Rottweilers are kind of cute, and I've always liked. I've always been kind of a Rottie fan. Uh, people like Rotties a lot. I did not know until we found out yesterday with our expert on the show that. Uh, German Shepherds were number one in the bite department. That was something of of a surprise to me. I did not think that that was, I would have thought it was pit bulls, quite honestly. Uh, And there are so many of them. Whenever I go on these sites, and I've gone on these sites a little bit, whenever I go on these sites to check out uh, what's available for adoption, if you are willing to adopt uh, a pit bull or even more so a mixed pit, We we do we not I don't think we say mutt anymore right a mixed a mixed breed dog that's what we're supposed to say or I I'm not even sure what the proper terminology there if it's a fancy mix then it's a designer dog like a a a -a cockapoo or something like that is that a isn't that one a cocker spaniel and a poodle or uh, and the the Obamas had a um what uh they had a I forget what it was what it was called a was a Portuguese water dog oh no that was a purebred. But there are people like these these dogs that are some of them are hypoallergenic, which I know gets them it gets everyone excited. But anyway, I'm thinking one day, team, one day I'm gonna get a dog. I'm gonna make it happen. Hopefully sooner rather than later. I got a few things on the plate. Gotta get a dog. You gotta like try to get engaged at some point. You know that would be nice. Maybe even some little little bucks. Uh, but I digress. Wow, what a huge digression. Uh, so yes, dogs, pit bulls, movies. You know, fun stuff to talk about. We'll hit that and more. Uh, if you want to give me a call before we close up shop today in the Freedom Hut, please do. 888-900-3393 is the number. We'll be back in just a few.
3: This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network.
0: Show. Speak your mind. Eight 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 nine hundred thirty
1: three ninety three. I know that there are divergent uh, opinions on this one, but I get very uncomfortable when we start to see what we think of as internet platforms playing the role of speech police. You are going to see much more of this in the months and years ahead. You are going to see a lot of this stuff underway. Um, and Google, according to this uh, piece that I see on linked on the Drudge Report, Google has banned 200 publishers since it passed a new policy against fake news. Um, so now they're, the company has weeded out bad ads in the past. Now it's weeding out bad publishers. This is fascinating because Google is a private company. And so as good, liberty-loving conservatives... We do have to keep in mind that Google is not a public utility. So they can have the procedures and policies in place that they want, of course, within the boundaries of law. But they can create codes codes of conduct that involve, you know, don't be mean to people and don't harass people. They can do all that stuff, and they're totally allowed to. Uh, And this is, uh, with the whole uproar over fake news, um, I think that there is there is pressure, real pressure, at the very top of Google, Yahoo, and these other sites, Facebook, Facebook's a huge one, to decide that certain publishers are just making up fake stuff and to get rid of it. Now, this is fascinating because, first of all, where, what do you do when someone starts to claim that this is, or that their information is a form of parody? Uh, what do you do when all of a sudden, Someone is wrong sometimes, but right other times. Or they're putting out theories that seem conspiratorial. Maybe they are conspiracy theories, but they're right once in a while. I know they have have guidelines now for what they're considering to be fake news. But the opportunities here for this to become political are enormous. And I just see this as a continued evolution of what we were dealing with in the past. Look, this is before my time. Although my lifetime has really coincided with the growth of alternative media, in the sense of half the country having their views represented in the media, uh, on the right. Nineteen. I was born in eighty-one. So over the course of my life, Rush and the nineties, and the internet, and then Fox News, and then all the other conservative sites that have popped up along the way, uh, and and channels here and there too they offer an alternative, but for a long time, the narrative was completely dominated by one side. For a long time, there was really no answer that the other side could come up. I mean, sorry, there's really no answer to what the other side was putting out there. And there was, in a way, a monopoly on the perception of the American people that ABC, CBS, NBC, and NPR, and some other long-standing legacy media outlets had now the internet of course created a change in that model and it's a change that is becoming more and more apparent with each passing day that these huge social media platforms are increasingly where especially younger people are getting their news um, and this is what they're turning to to find out what's going on in the world and so whereas the monopoly before was on newspapers and TV channels, radio, of course, was the outlier, which is why they want the Fairness Doctrine. There have been all of these attempts in the past to try to rein in conservative radio because the left has recognized for a long time that, yeah, conservative radio is a really powerful tool to counter the narratives that, other than radio, they've had a, a dominant hand in for such a long time. Anyway, the Internet really ended the stranglehold along with Fox but the internet ended the stranglehold that the left had on the narrative and of course the left has become more left now you know Democrats in the 60s and 70s or you look back at a speech that JFK would have given and the members of the there were at least people who were in the Democratic Party that had much more traditional values and much more comfortable with words like patriotism and all of that. Than what you have today. I mean, today you have this globalist far left progressive party that is is pushing for an internationalism above patriotism and a a much broader, longer discussion to have another time. But it's a change. Democratic Party has changed, has gone hard, has gone hard left, uh, particularly in the era of Obama. But the Internet allowed there to be all this competition among all these different sites. Right. So you you could set up a blog and if a lot of people read it, well, then you're a successful blog and you go from there. And a website that was doing a good job with its news coverage could compete. Well, if you can have bottlenecks now created by search engines, if search engines are in a position uh, to decide that some people are just coming up with completely fake stuff and other people are, um, you know, getting away with a little bit of shenanigans here and there... uh, Now you have a sort of return to the old model. It's going to be a lot harder. If Google and Facebook's, uh, I know right now they're saying it's fake news, but look at the effort to say that Breitbart is alt-right. And alt-right meant something different when Breitbart was publishing stories by those who were deemed to be in some way connected to the alt-right. Alt-right has been really uh, largely subsumed or appropriated into the Robert Spencer white nationalist movement. But I, as I've talked to you before on the show, that wasn't always what alt-right meant, or at least that wasn't always what people who thought they were alt-right were subscribing to and were involved in. But you could very easily see a situation in the future where a site that the left hates, like a Breitbart, if there are enough complaints about it or they say that it's advancing white supremacy, I mean, you just have to look at the verbiage used by the left you know opposition to uh, affirmative action more or less means that you're you know a, a terrible person, you're the equivalent of a Nazi, you're a racist, you're evil. Uh, you look at the way that the left frames a lot of these discussions and news sites that you and I would think of as being completely within the bounds of legitimate discourse and you know completely acceptable for public consumption may get caught up in, these new rules set up by these behemoths that have a largely monopolistic control over the flow of information over the internet so and i do think the left sees this as a way to regain that power to direct the conversation to determine what is acceptable and and what is not even for people to read at all it's paradoxical right there's a new censorship that comes From all of this. Originally, the Internet was an explosion of information for everyone to see, and so much of it was free. And that's still all true, of course. And the Internet does more and is more important with each passing year. But I think we're also seeing now that there are realities of the Web that we don't always take into account. We're having these discussions about how everything is now freed up and it's a flat, it's a flat uh, competitive field and the marketplace of ideas and all that other stuff. You look at Google, when someone Googles a word or they're looking for something, whatever's on that first page in that Google search is everything. People rarely go to the second page and definitely even more rarely go to the third page. So whatever comes up right away on Google is is an immensely powerful statement about that subject matter because Google gets to determine what is there. And they say they have this algorithm, but they're clearly tweaking the algorithm and they have the ability to prevent certain sites and publishers from popping up, they're just going to get better and better at that. And some of the most successful news websites, in fact, spent a tremendous amount of resources and time trying to find ways to game SEO, search engine optimization, so that they could get better rankings, essentially be on that front page of Google or Yahoo or any of the other ones. I remember there was like Ask Jeeves for a hot second. I don't even know if that's still a thing. Uh, Ask Jeeves was a website. Uh, I think Dogpile was a, a search engine that existed for a little while. There have been a, a whole bunch of these over the years that have uh, faded away. And I've told you before, I remember the first, my first internet experience that I really remember uh, was, other than, other, than a, other than just straight up AOL, I was being in a friend's house. I think this might even be before AOL. And his dad had CompuServe. And you could go into, there were a couple of chat rooms. And you, one for politics, one for sports, and just there are people chatting, and that was it was like I was in a spaceship, man. It was crazy. Uh, I remember, I remember seeing that, and and the whole, you know, you know, obviously you've got mail, and these things that we all got used to, and then learned to forget very quickly because we changed our habits on the web. Uh, but back to the the problem that I see arising here, the evangelists that are out there for the web in Silicon Valley were, we're quite aware of their politics. Uh, Peter Thiel, there are some exceptions, but overwhelmingly, they are left. Overwhelmingly, they are progressive. And this this fight that's happening under the Trump administration and even before, of course, during the primary, this argument over the, the truth and reality and facts, and you can get into that uh, moment of the alternative facts discussed by Kellyanne Conway, um, that is just going to become a bigger and bigger fo- focal point of all this. They're going to look for ways to sift out news sources and people and information they don't like and do it under the guise of this is fake news. Do it under the guise of this is the way that we get around Censorship. It's really stealth censorship or it's censorship by expanding definitions to include just things you don't like and pretend that it's information that is reckless or information that is um, that that is that is unacceptable to be out there in in the public sphere. So I I do have my concerns about this. I I see this return to an, an era where the left has such a dominance over the narrative day in and day out and Google and Facebook and these other platforms are just going to play a very big role in all of this. Um, they're going to be really involved in uh, determining what you see. And keep in mind, this isn't about this isn't a First Amendment issue in terms of the law. Maybe the spirit of the First Amendment, free exchange of ideas and free expression. But if Facebook wants to show you Huffington Post all day long, that's what they can do. They can do that. And if they want to hide. The Blaze from you, if they want to hide National Review from you and Fox News, they can do that. And the only way you can deal with it is to be aware and to try and reward search engines and sites that don't engage in this kind of stuff. But keep in mind, when you're talking about Google, I mean, how many of you use Google? Such a, these companies also just have giant ATM machines that they run in the, in the sense they just, with the public stock, they've got so much money. They can do whatever they want. But I like corporations. Just not corporations that can brainwash the whole country if they choose to, more or less, without anyone being able to stand in their way. That's a little that's a little terrifying. It's the way the media used to be. They want, they want that back. I mean, could you imagine anything that would be cooler than being a network anchor back in the 60s or the 70s? No one really to challenge you. No one to even find your old broadcast. You just go on TV, create a brand night after night, say whatever the heck you want no accountability you just look the part sound the part. Get paid a lot of money sound like Ron Burgundy but hey probably was a lot of fun all right team we got more um, I'll be back in just a second eight 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 nine 88-90-3393. if you want to sneak in a call before we close out otherwise back in a few this is the Buck Sexton show
2: the blaze radio network
1: Oh team so good to have you with me here today Uh, I'm in for rush tomorrow so this is really my last opportunity for this week to get a chance uh, to talk to you and uh, all I have all sorts of well first of all anytime I get to fill in for rush is obviously I mean I I was about to say it's it's a rush I didn't mean that as a terrible pun but it is so cool, and and every time I do it, I, I try to keep Facebook and Twitter open because I know I can get some members of the team, getting me fired up and making sure that I uh, do a a team buck worthy show on the very large platform, the much bigger platform of the EIB. Um, so I appreciate those of you that can that can uh, join me for that. It does feel like you give me home team advantage even when I'm playing an away game. Although, you know, Rush is. Folks are always so good to me, even the audience I'm talking about. uh, They're always very kind and very supportive when I do all of that. And I've been thinking a lot about this recently. I've been doing radio now. It'll be, gosh, I think it's, I think this might be the fourth. I think I'm coming on the fourth year of radio here shortly in, uh, well, right around now, I think I started four years ago. Uh, I should have done the math and made sure that I'm not running off the rails. Yeah, I think it was four years ago. I've been doing radio for four years. Um, and all many of you have been with me for those four years. You really do feel like uh, friends and, and my extended radio family, as I say, and I really mean that. I, I spend a lot of time with all of you, and because of uh, the ways we can communicate, email, you can call in, and Facebook and Twitter and, and all the rest of it, I, I do feel very much like I know a lot of you. Um, I don't have anything specific to share with you right now um, on this front, but I would just say that there's some really exciting stuff on the horizon, and I'm really glad that I have all of you with me because I'm looking at some very interesting ways to expand on what I'm doing here with you day in and day out on the Freedom Hut. Obviously, many of you have seen me popping up on Fox more. Uh, we're looking to take the Freedom Hut. We're already national, but we're looking to make this uh, quite a big thing and, and to, to expand our own family here. And I'm thinking, I'm hoping that in the days ahead, I'll have some really exciting announcements about Team Buck and additional ways to listen to Team Buck and all sorts of things like that. So I know that's vague, but I just wanted to give you that here on Thursday before we head off uh, into the weekend, so I won't be with you tomorrow. I will be with you on Monday. As always, as always, Shield Time.
0: The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network.